Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Ritu Raman. I'm a postdoctoral fellow working with Bob Langer at MIT. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories about uh, being interested in science and technology? Do you have any memories about that? Yeah, um, you know, I necessarily didn't know that I wanted to be a scientist. Um, Something that I was very excited about was doing something that had an impact on my community and my world. So probably my very first memories are a child um, were growing up in Kenya, where both mm-hmm. my parents, they're both engineers. Um, I watched them put up communication towers in rural villages. And it was just like a really impactful experience for me because I saw that because they were engineers, they were able to build something that had like a tangible lasting impact on a community. And I knew that's something I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that, you know, through journalism or, I don't know, being a sports star. Mm. Um, but eventually I settled on science and engineering as wow. the most um, viable career path towards that goal. That's interesting, yeah. I'm curious to ask you, since you have been in different demographic regions, and I, I saw that something maybe affected in your personality, your way of thinking. How would you like to being in different location as a kid and what changed yeah. in you? Yeah, so I, you know, I was born in India. Um, I moved to Kenya when I was quite young, and then I moved back to India, lived there for a couple of years, and then I've lived in the U.S. Um, since I was about 10, but I've lived all over the United States, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of cultural variation there as well. So I'm very, you know, that's something that's always been very interesting to me, thinking mm-hmm. about how people from different regions um, think about education and think about science. I think one thing that I really loved about science and math and engineering is that you know, you go to a different school on a different continent, you know, the languages they teach you are different, the history they teach you is different, the geography they teach you is different, but the science they teach you is always the same. Um, And so that was something that was really like compelling to me to show that it's kind of a shared global language for all of us to talk about something um, that is equally important to us and affects the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So I would like to go back, what is the first robot you build? You have already, I think, mechanical engineering, Bachelor, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's interesting that you have both combination biomedical and mechanical. I don't know if you remember what's the first robot you build or an intelligent system. Oh no, I totally do. Um, so you know, the first robot I built is kind of very similar to what I thought a robot was. Well, not necessarily. So I think when I was a kid, right, I thought a robot is something that's kind of humanoid. It looks kind of human, but it's made out of metal. Um, it's about human sized and it can like talk to you. So that's the sort of thing you see in like cartoons and movies and gets you really excited about robotics. Um, so I think that's what I thought a robot was, but for you know, the first time I built a robot was I think in a mechatronics class at Cornell as an undergraduate mechanical engineer. 
and we were told to i think built you know kind of like a an autonomous car vehicle that could navigate a course you know avoid obstacles and then eventually we had like a face-off between all of our cars to see like which one could shove the other robotic car out of a circle and i did you know reasonably well in that competition i don't think it was any very stellar um but it, it was kind of a very traditional robotics experience um in the sense that i was building something where everything from the sensors to the processors to the actuators were made out of metal or plastic. Um, the first real robot that I built mm. that I'm like the most excited about was a soft robot powered by biological materials. And I can mm -hmm. tell you more about that. <laughs> yeah, and that's the most interesting part uh, you have been doing as a designer. Um, I would like to go before this interesting part. What is the most beautiful and profound equation inspires you while you work? Oh, that is a great question. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a, a maybe a, a lame response because yeah. as a mechanical engineer, it's, you know, fairly obvious. But I think I really am just really inspired by F equals MA. I mean, I'm sorry if that's a very basic answer, but, yeah. you know, a mechanical engineer, a lot of what I do is I build things that convert some kind of energy into mechanical energy, like like force output and thinking about force output and how it changes over time in different situations. That's, that's, you know, the, yeah. the most simple simplification of what I've focused my career on. That's great. Yeah. So since now you have been working soft robotics and I think what makes you really special that you are trying to combine both biological material and uh, synthetic material, but before going to that, how you would define soft robotics from your, your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's right in the title, right? So it's essentially, we've always thought of robotics as things made out of these like hard, you know, rigid plastics and metals mm -hmm. combined with some sort of joints. There's limited degrees of freedom that you can pre-program and are responsive to its environment in some way. Um, and I would just say that soft robotics kind of throws that degrees of freedom thing kind of out the window, right? It's like, mm -hmm. rather than having something that can only move in these prescribed axes, you have something that is literally soft, it is compliant, it's not going to break, it's, you know, closer to, um, you know, movement that we generate or things in our natural environment generate. And there's just much more um, higher degrees of freedom in the types of movement that can be, that yeah. Can be produced. Yeah. And for the research, what do you think the most important question while you're working, you have to consider this question before going and embarking in the project for the robotic, what could be this question that comes to your mind? So to me, I think the most important question comes to this idea of, of biology and integrating biology into it. So, you know, biological materials are the things that make up our body and the natural world that surrounds us. And the really nice thing about them is that they can autonomously sense, process and respond to their environments in real time. So when you're running around, um, you're getting stronger because your muscles are getting stronger. If you fall while you're running around, your skin can, you know, heal from the tear and bleeding that ensues. Um, and these kinds of like incredibly responsive functionalities are very difficult slash, you know, at this point, impossible to integrate into traditional robots, soft or not. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, I think the most important question that has to be um, considered is how do we make these truly responsive in a robust way to their environment? How do we make something that does, you don't need to program it for 
the situations you believe it will encounter. Mm -hmm. You program it and you expect that it will dynamically adapt to changing surroundings that you didn't plan for. Mm -hmm. Great. So if you can tell us about your work as Hybrid designer and for the audience first time listening, what, what, what you're actually doing, why it's important. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so like I said, I, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer by training, but I'm very um, fascinated by biological materials. And, and the way that I got this fascination is around the time that I was, you know, building those, um, you know, those autonomous cars that were shoving other people's cars as an undergraduate. Um, I had a part time job in a biology lab. I just took it because I, you know, needed the experience and, you know, working in a lab. It wasn't necessarily something I was thinking about. Um, so I'm working in this lab and they were studying whether, um, you know, when you drink a lot of alcohol, your skeletal muscle degenerates, but when you exercise a lot, your skeletal muscle can regenerate or grow. Mm -hmm. And they were in a rat model studying, you know, if we get a bunch of rats very drunk, chronically drunk, but have them exercise a lot, can those two effects sort of cancel each other out and result in no net damage to the skeletal muscle? So I was spending all of my time essentially taking these rats and putting them on treadmills to look at how the force generated by their muscles was changing in response to their changing diet or changing behavioral interventions. And it was such a sharp contrast, right, to like what I was seeing in my mechanical engineering classes. Here I am like, you know, using a motor in my car and it always produces the same force in response to the same power that I put into it. But in these rats, you know, the same kind of power input is generating drastically different um, functional outcomes based on its surroundings, based on how much it's exercising or what it's eating. And I just grew really fascinated with that. And I decided to focus my PhD on thinking about whether we could integrate biological materials into robots. Mm -hmm. So very broadly, if you think of, you know, the way I, I define robots um, is anything that can somewhat autonomously sense, process, and respond to its environment in real time. And what I call, you know, biological robots or biobots essentially use biological materials to do one or all of those functions. So mm -hmm. if you look at actuation or force production. Um, the first biological robot that I worked on used skeletal muscle as an actuator, living skeletal muscle that we engineered in the lab. Um, and it was essentially every time the muscle contracted, the robotic skeleton would deform and it could crawl across the floor. Um, and so that was sort of the, the first um, direction of this new line of research that I decided to pursue. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So before going to more details, what could be the nearest application you can imagine for what are you doing for human body? What could be the, the feasible application for that? Yeah, um, so I mean, I think there's a couple ways you could take this. One way is every time you build you know, muscle in the lab, you're understanding a lot about how muscle functions both in its healthy state as well as its diseased or pathological state. Um, so muscle does a fairly good job of regenerating from small damages in your body, say you like tear it or something from an exercise. But if you, you know, you know, people go to war or they have a car accident and they lose a huge chunk of muscle or a limb, mm. that kind of damage can't be restored. So I think the first thing is to think of rather than replacing that with some sort of bionic, metallic, um, prosthetic or implant, why not replace it with engineered muscle um, that can integrate with the surrounding tissue and completely restore um, force production and all of the natural functionality of your leg. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would think would be the first line of defense. And then after that, um, 
you know, I'm very interested in the medical space, so I'll keep talking about medical applications, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of implants that we put inside of our body that are intended to restore motion or generate motion. So anything from like a pump to like a biopsy tool, um, a lot of these things are actuating. And so you can power them using a metallic device, but then you have issues related to, you know, MRI compatibility or requiring it to power it with a pretty intensive battery. Mm -hmm. um, if you could do that with an engineered muscle tissue, um, then you don't have that problem. So mm -hmm. those are kind of the medical directions that I'm really interested in. That's a great. So I'm asking you about the challenges of fabrication engineered muscles in that case. Mm -hmm. What could be the challenge? For example, the properties, how, how do you think there is, it is similar to what human body already had after damages or something like that, or healing before, after? Do you think that the same mechanical properties mimics the, the what happened in human body, or that's something that's a trade-off while the engineer uh, by hybrid material? Yeah, so I would say that right now, we are not at a state where the tissue that we engineer in lab exactly matches the force production that we have in the body. We're still, I would say, maybe like an order of magnitude, almost less than that. Um, but we do retain many of the functionalities of the biological tissue such that we can exercise um, engineered muscle actuators and make them stronger. Um, we can also see that they recover from small volume damages to the um, tissue that we engineer in the lab. So they have some of the advantageous properties, they cannot yet fully match the function of living biological tissue that you just, you know, take from our bodies. However, there are a lot of, you know, this is not just an engineering problem, but a biology problem, right? And a lot of biologists have discovered new ways of taking those cells and differentiating them into viable muscle tissue that are much more effective and are producing forces that are much closer to what you see inside the body. So I think it's mm -hmm. very much within the realm of possibility that is both biology and engineering advance in synchrony um, will be able to completely replicate the function of native muscle. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating because you have the both expertise from mechanical and biomedical side. But I'm curious to ask you this question, I don't know if that's relevant, but do you think when you're working in fabrication or maybe understanding, do you think you can come up with an advanced model that beyond a human being, how the structure of the tissue or the muscles looks like? Do you think you can, we can advance what we already have as a human being? Well, that's something uh, impossible. Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's impossible. Um, and I think there's a couple different ways to do it. And there's also the question of whether you should do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll say a couple ways that I think you could do it. So one way is, you know, you can use genetic engineering tools or something to knock out certain types of um, proteins or inherent regulatory mechanisms that exist in our tissues. Um, so for example, there's something there's something called myostatin, which mm -hmm. kind of tells your muscle not to keep growing and growing and growing. And you know, there are these examples of like cows and things like that, where they have a disease where myostatin is knocked out and they look like bodybuilders. I mean, they are like incredibly muscular because they're not able to regulate creating like a normal amount of muscle and stopping mm -hmm. so you could do something like that if you were interested in engineering you know biological muscle tissue that was very strong you might not want to put that inside a human being because yeah. there could be something called off-target effects so your body could react to that in a very poor way and you know potentially make you sick however if you were going to do something that was purely in a lab setting or untethered or not being implanted in a person being you know, applied purely to a robotics problem mm -hmm. um, that's outside of a medical context, then it would be, you know, I can see reasons for doing something like that. Um, a different way of sort of, um, I would say, 
maybe not necessarily making the muscle stronger, but increasing the functionality of the muscle is doing what I call biohybrid engineering. So not only building with biological tissues, but also integrating smart synthetic materials into mm-hmm. the construct. So you can think about, you know, what are ways that I could maybe put sensors, um, you know, thin film, piezoelectrics, other things integrated with this engineered tissue, such that, you know, normal muscle, for example, isn't responsive to light. I can't turn it on and off by shining a light on it, but I have engineered tissues in the lab that are responsive to light because that was very important for the robotics application that I was targeting. Um, So those are kind of the two ways that you could go with that. Um, I would say that the one area that I'm not very interested in um, for ethical reasons is thinking about ways we can, you know, genetically engineer the tissue to make it stronger that doesn't have an off-target effect on the surrounding body. Because Mm. I think that's that's where you get into the territory of like trying to make somebody stronger than they yeah. naturally would be. Um, and obviously, you know, you know, it's, it's, we're not close to that, but even in say like 50 years or a hundred years, I don't want to get into territory of like creating people who can buy superhuman strength. Um, that's yeah. not something that I think we should be working towards. And I actively don't work towards that. I think there's excellent point. I think we come back again about ethics and regulation and that's really mm-hmm. very good point here highlighted. Um, Yeah, I think that's something great, but uh, I would like to go again for more details about what's the challenges of uh, combining different materials, because you work in, for the software ball community, still we don't have um, the possibility of using uh, biological materials in, in some research, but what are the challenges of different of combining different material? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge of combining different materials are that they are designed to function in very different environments, right? Like wood was designed to function outdoors at ambient temperature and in mm-hmm. certain types of humidity that changes depending on like where it was made. So obviously bamboo looks very different from, you know, oak. Um, so there's certain kind of environmental conditions and, and similar to that, um, biological materials, you know, I work with cells that are derived from mammals. So Um, mouse, mice, rats, you know, pigs, humans, whatever it is. Um, and we all know that mammals function at body temperature, right? Like 37 degrees C, depending on where in your body it's from, it's surviving under a certain amount of humidity and pH, and it can only operate within that very tight range. So then you are constrained to, you know, when you're building with these cells, you're building them in that environment, and you're also going to think about applications that occur in that environment. And if you integrate synthetic materials, be that metal or polymers or whatever it is, you also want to pick things that are um, compatible with that environment, either compatible with that temperature um, or pH, but also compatible with being near living cells. You can't use something that's poisonous or toxic to human beings in an implantable mm-hmm. device, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of design considerations um, around what is the best place for this material to function. Mm-hmm. Great. So if I ask you, because it, it's really interesting what you're doing, but uh, do you think that this living creature may be more inspiring than human body structure? Do you think there's maybe intelligence in the structure, in, in nature? Do you, do, you, do you have this kind of thought or human body, do you think the best example to engineer tissue by hybrid <laughs> design? Um, that's a great question. I mean, so let me put it this way, like because I'm focused on medical devices and I'm very specifically focused on restoring 
um, motion, mobility, motility uh, to human beings. The most inspiring living creature from my perspective is humans because I want to return them to like their best case yeah. scenario. However, if I weren't focused on implantable devices, and I've thought about, you know, going rogue and doing something else in the past, if I were thinking about a biological robot that I was, say, using for, you know, environmental toxin cleanup, thing like that, mm -hmm. um, I would look towards things that are more in the insect realm because insect muscle, um, it operates at room temperature. It can mm -hmm. actually, you know, it has a broader range of temperatures where it's like more robust and active. Um, and it can operate in air, like not necessarily in a liquid medium for a certain period of time. So I think if I weren't a medical device person, my answer would be different. Um, but because mm -hmm. my focus is on medicine, um, I'm still most inspired by humans. That's great, yeah. And for the healing, because I think uh, what I can perceive that you want really to address a real problem. For example, detection of like cancer. I, I think that was a dream since 10 years ago, how we can have soft robot that can go and investigate and heal the, tr the tumors. I don't know, what do you think about that? Do you think we have a stridus enough uh, or visible stridus that we can one day we have this small soft problem that can heal our bodies uh, for so fast um, in case of cancer or damages or yeah um so i think you know cancer is a great example of a disease that looks very different for different people mm -hmm. um you know you're going to be presented with somebody who seems like they have the same tumor as the person sitting next to them but what you don't actually realize is based on you know, their pre-existing conditions or yeah. like their body size or their family history or genetic makeup, yeah. you can give them the same exact medicine at the same dose at the same time and they're going to respond incredibly differently to that. Um, and there's, a, it, this is true of most diseases, but I think cancer is a case where that is um, most obvious. Um, and so I think, you know, based on that, there's been a huge trend in medicine and in biomedical engineering towards this concept of personalized medicine, giving every person the care that they need, the dosage of a medicine that they need, um, that is best suited for them to get better. And that's where I think, you know, the idea of robotic integration makes starts making a lot more sense. Um, robots were invented to be dynamically responsive to their environment, right? It was something that needed to be able to sense different kinds of inputs and then change what it was doing based on the input that it was receiving. That's why we you know, invented them in the first place. And that's what you start seeing when you think about personalized medicine. You can think about something that, you know, essentially travels to a tumor or mm -hmm. maybe you're, you know, replacing a piece of muscle tissue so that you're engineering muscle to replace it. Whatever it is, um, based on how much that person exercises or how well they're responding to treatment, you want this um, machine or robot that you're implanting inside them to sense how that environment is changing and adjust its, its treatment accordingly. Um, mm. So I think that that's definitely a trend that we're going to see grow. Um, now, robotics is one way to do it. Um, cell therapy is another way to do it. And it's really going to depend very much on the particular application and, and how these technologies involve. So I don't think robots are always the answer, but I think in some cases they will make a very compelling case. That's um, and that's what I'm really excited about. That's a great. So I'm curious to ask you, what is an area or direction of research you, you think is very promising, but maybe soft robotics community seems to disagree mm -hmm. or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? 
Yeah, so the thing that I'm most excited about, and I think it's not that it doesn't get much attention, I think just because no one's really proven that it can be done, it kind of seems like a pie in the sky idea. Um, But I'm hoping that we're not as far from it as, as people seem to think we are. So the thing that I think is really promising is that You know, a lot of the work that I did and my colleagues did were some of the first demonstrations of muscle-powered, living muscle-powered robotics. Um, Mm -hmm. Specifically, I focused on skeletal muscle and did a lot of the work in that space. And skeletal muscle in our bodies receives cues from our peripheral nervous system, from motor neurons, you know, that are extending from our spinal cord, but also connected to our brains. And so we're making voluntary movements. We're telling them when to turn on and off. And a lot of times um, we're getting feedback, right? Like we are responsive to temperature changes. We're responsive to pressure. Um, We can, you know, compute all these very complex decisions and make a decision on how we want to move and based on that. And so I think the missing element from a lot of what we're working on is this neuronal processing and control. Why don't we have motor neurons and sensory neurons integrated with our biological robots um, being able to sense multiple signals and process them and respond? And I think the the answer to why is, and maybe why people aren't giving much attention, is that it's incredibly hard and nobody has done it yet. Um, But as I said, the great thing about this field is that biology is changing every day and our understanding of biology is changing every day. So the instant somebody comes up with a better way to differentiate motor neurons from, from, you know, human induced pluripotent stem cells, which we're close to that, we're doing, you know, there's some really good papers out on that in the past couple of years, we can start thinking about integrating those cells into these robots. So Hmm. if the right people who are listening to both the engineering community and the biology community come along, um, I think that that will be the next big direction of this kind of research. Yeah. I would like to stress again about the point that you had, uh, I think you, you went to the biomedical lab, as you, as you mentioned earlier, to get this expertise. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm going to ask you which level you have to understand. For example, in the soft robotics community, we have challenges in coming up with descriptive model that could help us yeah. in understanding and having designed recipe for soft robotics. Mm-hmm. But it seems for me it's complex, just you have to understand biology and, and also different, uh, synthetic material. To which level do you think you have to understand? Do you need models? How, how, which level do you have to understand how this system work together? If you can tell mm-hmm. us more how you imagine this process uh, in your mind. Uh. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I will start by saying that the last biology class I took was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that I, I am a biologist by any means. Um, but I do know a lot about skeletal muscle at a pretty deep level at a pretty deep biological level. And that's something that you can, you know, really grow over time, essentially through reading, you don't necessarily, you know, when you're trained as a scientist, of course, there are certain buzzwords and things that we know in the robotics community, and we're very comfortable reading certain kinds of texts. And the first few years that you're reading biology texts, um, it is going to be very intimidating because there's mm. just a ton of acronyms of proteins and genes um, that you don't know, and it's okay to not know because that's not your field. However, you can't neglect it. I really do think that you don't need to know all of biology. You don't need to know necessarily how the immune system works, or you don't need to know how the respiratory system works if that's not your focus. But for me, because I was very focused on skeletal muscle, I know a lot about the basic biological skeletal muscle literature. And it's because I spend a lot of time reading it and trying to understand the basic biology. Mm -hmm. And as my research focus grows uh, or expands rather, 
um, you know, as I start thinking about neuronal control, motor neurons, sensory neurons, I start expanding into that field as well. So now I know a little bit more about neuroscience than I did when I first started um, doing this kind of field. And lately I've been doing a lot of research in the gastrointestinal space. So in addition to skeletal muscle, I also think a lot about smooth muscle and how um, those kinds of tissues generate force and produce motion. So I think biology is difficult and it can be learned um, and it should be learned, um, especially by those of us who think that, you know, it's not really for us or not really a part of our world. I mean, biological systems are some of the best, most beautiful robotic systems um, or autonomous systems that exist in the world. And to ignore them would be doing the robotics field a great disservice. Mm -hmm. That's a great. So if I ask you, what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics or maybe about your work? Is misconception perceived about what, how you, what you work actually about? Or maybe in general in the field? You can bo answer both yeah. of them. Um, so I think this is a misconception about robotics in general and also about biological robotics. Um, you know, movies and sci-fi and cartoons are great about getting people excited about robots, but I think very do a very poor job of explaining what can actually be done. Um, and also blowing sort of the negative consequences of that kind of research out of proportion. So when I, you know, talk about the fact that I build robots powered by living muscle, um, sometimes I will get pushback of like, oh my gosh, you said it's living. Does that mean it's alive and has a conscience? And are you creating, you know, a new life form? Um, and I, I love those kinds of discussions because I do want to have them and, and have a discussion about like, what is alive? Um, what does it mean to have a conscience? Um, to what point can we engineer something that it's made out of living materials, but isn't necessarily like a living being or creature with moral consideration and impact? Um, and I think that the biggest misconception is that we're building things that are honestly like much much more powerful and, and yeah. complex than they actually are. Like the robots that I make, they're very great at doing exactly what I tell them to do, you know, inside a body or something like that. Um, but also, like I said, they're very sensitive to their environment, right? So if I drop them on the floor, they're going to get infected or cold and die. Um, they're not going to, you know, reproduce into millions and take over the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important to have these kinds of conversations very openly. Um, I try not to be dismissive of people when they're like, oh my gosh, you're creating something that takes over the world. I'm like, hey, like, I want to know why you think that and what is the line for you that I shouldn't cross? And when they define that, I can usually be very clear about saying like, hey, like, we're about, you know, 100 years away from even being able to get close to something like that. And that's not the direction that, you know, anyone is interested in going anyway. Because like mm -hmm. most scientists, um, I would say pretty much all scientists are interested in doing something that's helpful for their communities and people around them. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in helping people who've lost the ability to walk or generate force, um, help them restore their ability to do that and have a better quality of life. And, and that's my focus. So yeah. I think that's like the biggest misconception and I spend a lot of time um, talking to people about that. Yeah, I think what you're doing is, is, is sensitive, also in the longer term, how we can make sure what you're doing is not going to be misused. For example, you mm -hmm. say that to be stronger, and that's I think a dream for many people, that to be, to be stronger and... Yeah. But that's interesting, but I, I don't know as you're a scientist, what, what, what responsibilities you have so that you make sure this will not happen? Since we, we already see some situation, you don't have control for the good or the bad uses of the technology, but from your responsibility, what could be regulation you can do as an individual 
Or do you mm-hmm. think community have a regulation? Because there is, of course, we don't have enough regulations of robotics field, but for you, what do you imagine how, how this can be regulated? Mm-hmm. I think this is a great question, not only for this field, but every field in science, right? Like everything that we create has the possibility to do good and could also be used to create a weapon or do something that is hurtful for people. And that's true of pretty much everything that a scientist or engineer could do. And that's something that we deal with every day. So one thing, you know, The good thing about that, um, even though that it's a challenging conversation that needs to be had, is that these conversations have been had in the past and we can learn from them. If they did something positive, we can take that. If we did something negative, we can take that. So I'll give the example of you know gene editing, um, but also you see similar conversations in artificial intelligence in those mm. communities. Um, you know, there was this big conference that happened when people were like, they got a bunch of scientists together and talked about like, you know, what are all the potential bad things that could happen? And then they came up with a set list of rules that the scientists agreed to like follow as a community and kind of keep an eye on each other um, and make sure that people were working towards a good goal. And, you know, I think that worked reasonably well, but obviously you're always going to have sort of rogue figures go off and not necessarily do what the scientific authority is doing. Um, And I also think the big problem with that approach is that it comes across very ivory tower, right? It's like Mm. the people who are doing the thing are also the people making the decisions and they don't involve any other stakeholders in their community in Mm. that decision-making process. And I hate that. I don't like that at all. So the way I think about ethics, um, I go out of my way to engage people that are not scientists, um, you know, so lay people, but also who are the people writing the laws and making the policies? Who are the people, you know, working in government who are deciding what research gets funded? All of these kinds of people, teachers, lawyers, doctors, they need to be integrated with these conversations and their opinions need to matter just as much. Because as Mm. a scientist, you should only be working on something if, you know, people broadly agree that it's the right thing to do and they have a right to. They're funding your research for the most part, so they should have a say in what's happening. Um, so I would say that's kind of the, the approach I would take is I, I'm not a fan of saying we shouldn't do something because it's possible that 60 years from now, someone could use it for evil because by that logic, nobody would ever do anything. Um, however, I don't think that we should only make these decisions with fellow scientists because we think we're the only ones that Mm -hmm. know enough. Um, I definitely think we should be integrating a lot of different kinds of people into that conversation. That's brilliant point. I would like to thank you for bringing this point. I, 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 that's really important because I, that's a question we have. How you ensure what you're doing is beneficial. But you bring something very important where I think we lack in this concept that when you develop something, uh, when you receive funding and grant as a commission, you, do, you don't really, I, I, I don't want to make a big generalization about that, but what you mentioned, I, I don't see it really applied in our mm-hmm. uh, academic community. I don't know how you envision that something can can be done and to bring it to table before you start a project and see whether the lay people or a community or... That's something I think serious, but I don't know what could be solutions so that we can consider that seriously mm-hmm. in, in having fund and grant for four or five years. Yeah, um, I mean, I can think of a couple ways that I, I think about doing the work and I think they're certainly not the only ways. 
Um, so one way is to interface directly with the people making grant decisions. So at least I live mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, so something that I've done in the past is, you know, MIT has a group of students and postdocs that go to Washington, D.C., and they set up meetings with members of Congress. Um, they have staffers that, you know, decide what bills get signed or how much money goes to the National Science Foundation every year and stuff like that. And we literally set up one-on-one -on -one face to face meetings with them. Generally, we set up meetings with people who mm. are from our state or something like that. So I might be like, hey, like I'm from upstate New York, like you represent my district. Let me tell you about like why the work that I'm doing that's funded by the National Science Foundation is going to change cancer therapy 100 years from now. And I really think it's important for you to like sign this bill and, you know, fund this kind of work. So, you know, in that kind of system, I think that's one way that at least in the U.S., um, is a way to interact with funding organizations and, and tell them about your concerns. Um, the other thing I focus on is not only doing outreach to children, um, but doing outreach um, that focuses specifically at teachers at mm -hmm. the K-12 level, because they're the people who are staying in the system for a long period of time and can have an impact on a lot of different families. Um, you know, you teach one teacher about soft robotics and every single family that interfaces with her through their child is going to get some of that knowledge back to them, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's another way that I think about getting the information out, you know, going into classrooms um, and not only focusing on the children, but focusing on having conversation with the educators and showing them that like, you know, this is what I'm working on. I hope you think it's interesting and important and we'll consider it, you know, in the future when you're thinking about, you know, who yeah. you're voting for or, you know, what kind of work you'd like to support. That's really inspiring. Yeah, I, I hope that could be even um, applied in many Q12, uh, many different regions. Yeah, it's very important. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, was there any direction you thought would work out very well when you were just uh, in, in analytical modeling or just when you're thinking, but empirical result proved something else? Was maybe interesting for you, was expected, and was like, mm -hmm. wow, I didn't expect that. This is completely different, yeah. Yeah, no, I can tell you about something and it will actually tie back to our earlier conversation about how the last biology class I took was in high school. So sometimes mm -hmm. I expected something because I was very naive about biology mm -hmm. um, and then learned uh, that I was quite wrong. Um, so, yeah. you know, one thing that really stands out is we've talked about healing a couple times and so that muscle can heal from some small damaged tears and things like that. Um, in our bodies quite well. So I figured I've engineered this muscle tissue in the lab. Let me go take a knife and, you know, tear it and, mm -hmm. and see what happens, like see if it's able to recover from that damage. And um, so I went in and I tried to do it. I tried to tear it and it didn't, it didn't recover at all. And I was like, oh my goodness, what's happening? I thought that this is what these cells were supposed to do. But then I took a deeper dive into the actual biology of what happens when you damage muscle. And turns out that there's, you know, the actual differentiated muscle fibers, um, once they form, they can't regenerate. So in our bodies, what happens when they tear is they're dead, they can't do anything, but they send out biological or biochemical signals to their environment that recruit a population of stem cells that sit around the muscle that then travel to the site of damage and then create new muscle fibers that generate the resulting tissue. Mm -hmm. So now that I know the biological mechanism of doing that, I had to go back to my model system and tweak it a bit and think about how can I have a population of cells that are sitting around on the outside um, or that I add in myself um, that don't, um, you know, 
don't it, when they sense a damage or when I induce a damage, they can move to the site of damage and regenerate force and produce motion. And when I, you know, approached it from that biological framework, um, I was able to make robots that could completely recover from damage after about two days. Mm -hmm. So that was something I was very excited about and, that's cool. and taught me a lot about biology. So yeah, that's cool. So maybe this question is related here. What are the biggest technological roadblocks? I would take it again for biohybrid design. You mentioned mm -hmm. something interesting that if you want to be playing genetics, or, as you say, then you'd be stronger. Uh, but what is the limitation? As you a designer, I think in designing you set a goal. So what is your goal in, for designing biohybrid materials? Just uh, mm -hmm. what is the goal? Yeah, you so I would say that because a lot of my goals are about replacing you know, large volumes of muscle tissue that are not functional in our bodies, either because of disease or damage. Yeah. The biggest technological roadblock to that is making something that big. So the robots that I've made are a few millimeters long and about, you know, half a millimeter wide. Um, and that's because the tissue that we've engineered is not vascularized. It doesn't have blood vessels. And so what this means is that when I need to submerge it in a liquid that has, you know, sugars and proteins and amino acids, mm. and that's how it's getting its food. The food literally diffuses into the tissue. You can imagine based on, you know, what we know about diffusion, as the tissue gets thicker and thicker and thicker, the nutrients won't get to the center of the tissue. In our bodies, the reason we're able to be as big as we are is because we have these blood vessel networks that permeate throughout our bodies, such mm. that when we eat or when we breathe, those nutrients um, and that oxygenation is taken to every part of our body. And that's why we're able to sustain such big frames. Um, so I would say the biggest technological roadblock, and really it's something that a lot of new 3D printing technologies are um, making inroads towards fixing. Um, but right now the big, biggest hurdle is making something that's big enough um, that also doesn't have a necrotic core or a dead cell center. Mm. Um, something that's able to be, you know, integrated with our surrounding vascular network and stay alive over a long period of time. That's interesting, yeah. So for intelligence, what could be intelligence you think of beyond that what we have in biology, since you have to combine different materials? What could be the intelligent behavior you expect beyond what we have already? What could be intelligence and in that behavior? Yeah, um, so that's a great question because one thing that I think is lacking from my understanding right now, because I spent so long trying to understand biology, mm. is my understanding of the fields of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So, you know, I've spent a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, we've got to integrate neurons into these things because obviously we have such beautiful mechanisms in place in our brains and the brains of the biological systems that surround us that give us things like learning and memory. Mm. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be said with what we can do using, you know, purely neurological materials and circuits derived from biology. But I, I'm positive that there's things that we can do computationally from a processing perspective using, you know, metallic components or, or new synthetic materials um, that maybe you have faster processing or like mm -hmm. multi-level processing or things that are operating, um, you know, through parallelly computing several things at the same time that aren't possible in our brains, right? They, mm. We do have situations that, you know, a, my computer right now in front of me can run a calculation faster than my brain can, but I can probably learn and respond to my environment in a way that my computer can't. So I, for me, intelligence um, is really thinking about how do we integrate the best of both the biological and synthetic worlds 
um, and make something that has the advantages of both of those things, while still, again, keeping in mind the ethical implications of doing that. Um, yeah. You want to create something that's the point of creating a robot or a machine is to make our lives better and easier and healthier. Right. And and that's that should always be the focus, the end goal. And yeah. thinking about how we can do that through intelligence, I think, is the really yeah. interesting perspective. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and theme for emotion as well, because the same idea you mentioned earlier when you cut and it doesn't heal again. This example mm-hmm. just to you, you explore, but while you work in you mentioned scenario if for scenario one like prosthetic arm or something or tissue mm-hmm. thump, how you can and do you think it's necessary to have the pain? Because it's it's uh, I don't know how you explain it, but when you have the pain and you feel it as a human being and when mm-hmm. you develop a synthetic material with biological material, do you think the pain element could be replicated or you have to remove the pain element or this is something you thought about it or not necessary I don't know but I'm asking you yeah um so that's a great question I think it's very dependent on where you're putting so I think if we were thinking of making an implant that was going inside a human being you definitely would want to integrate the engineered muscle with sensory neurons that sense pain because pain is the important way that our body tells us that we're doing something that is actively Mm. harming us. So in that context, having a pain sensory response is very important and crucially important to function. However, if you were making a robot that was untethered in some way, right, Um, and you were just thinking about releasing, you know, having it do some sort of functional task in an environment, um, you might want to think about whether, you know, pain is something you want to integrate or whether that's something that's even ethical to integrate. Like, do you want to create something that um, feels pain over and over again when it doesn't really need to? Um, It's just a model tissue system. And that's the sort of thing where I think you really have to understand the biology a little bit better. So you can say, you know, a sensory neuron that what we think of as something that senses pain is really just something that takes a mechanical stretch stimulus and converts that into an electrical output. So in that mm. sense, it's just a sensor. It's not really a feeling. Um, that feeling comes when that sensory neuron is talking to other neurons um, in our brains and telling us that this is something that's like unpleasant or something that we shouldn't do. And as long as we don't integrate those components, then we're not really creating something as complex in emotion or feeling as pain. So I don't know if that's like too philosophical an answer, um, but I think it's for every single application, essentially, you just really need to think of um, what is the thing you're trying to accomplish and what is the bare minimum of materials that you need to put in there to get that functional response. And then don't go crazy adding a whole bunch of other stuff because that's not necessary um, and could also have potentially um, ethically murky implications. Yeah, great. So we are closing to the end. We have a few questions. First one, how, how to ensure soft robotics you develop is beneficial to humanity or a community? You, you answered part of that, but I would like to give, to, to give us more detailed answer because you're really working also in democratizing STEM education. I think you, you really fight for, for this right, how you make sure that what you do is beneficial. So if you can tell us from your thoughts, uh, what could be the right steps you can do? Yeah, so I mean, I think I tend to focus my efforts on a couple different areas. Um, one uh, is more starting young um, and thinking about just encouraging a more diverse population of students to feel that science and robotics is for them. Um, and the second part of what I do is more like giving actual, you know, undergraduate graduate students the skills they need to build biological or biohybrid robots. 
Um, so, you know, the first part of what I do, um, I do a lot of outreach um, at all levels, you know, starting from like little kids um, to even people who are adults but have a newfound interest in science. I give a lot of talks, do demos, um, podcasts, TV shows, whatever it is. Um, get out there, just talk about science in an accessible way um, and make sure that I'm answering people's questions and show them that like I, you know, scientists are here to create something that is um helpful to you and mm. if you wanted to you can also contribute to that world and here are pathways that we can do that and i especially go out of my way to encourage young women um to pursue this path um because i think it, it tends to be a very male-dominated field a lot of the things like mechanical engineering electrical mm. engineering computer science tend to be very male-dominated and they really don't need to be there's nothing innate in women that says that we can't do that um yeah. And it would be silly to think that. Um, so I think that's a, a big focus of what I do. Um, and the second part, like I said, is giving people the actual skills they need to build biological soft robots. So I designed and taught my own class at the University of Illinois and at MIT, where I taught undergraduates, not just in, you know, mechanical or biomedical engineering, but pretty much any field can come and take this class and learn how to build a robot that uses living muscle to move and walk around. Um, and, you know, in different iterations of that class, we have a final project where students can, you know, try and build a robot that does something that they're more interested in or excited about. And my goal with that is basically to say for thousands of years, engineers have been building with a certain set of materials, right? Like metals and polymers and whatnot. And I just want them to know that even if you're not a biologist, biological materials are also materials that you can build with. They have an input, they have an output, and that's all you need to understand in order to build with them. Um, and I want to make sure that more people have access to those tools. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about uh, how we can or how can we enable more inclusive culture around combative ideas in academia? Since we, of course, we sometimes we have the issue that there's gatekeeping for certain ideas or approaches. Mm -hmm. So how we can enable more inclusive uh, intellectual inclusiveness in uh, academic community in general? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that I target it is, again, through this sort of class kind of approach, right? Because yeah. not only what, when I started this um, research, um, I was one of very few people in the lab um, and also one of very few people in the world, really, working on, you know, this kind of muscle-powered robotics. And, and that number is still quite small. However, every year that I teach this class, right, you know, it's like, either eight or 20 or maybe 30 people are going to end up taking it. Um, and that's 30 more people that are trained to do this work and that are advancing throughout their career. And sure, is that a slower way of, of creating, you know, a wave of excitement and interest about biological rob robots? Sure. But I've already seen in since I started graduate school in you know, 2012, and I started working on this project in, I think, around 2013 or 2014. So, yeah, you know, in six or seven years, um, biohybrid robotics has already been very accepted by science robotics and mm -hmm. the big journals in the field. And IEEE, I've hosted workshops on this space. Um, so, you know, change is slow, but it can happen. And the, the way to do it is to get a lot of young people who are very excited about the field publishing great papers that others can't ignore. Um, hmm. I don't think that's the only way to create a more inclusive culture about, you know, new radical fields, but that's the way that um, I'm pursuing. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about what could be opportunities for machine learning and um, bi-hybrid design. Is it like generative design? Do you think any, any maybe thoughts what could be contribution by 
integrating machine learning in what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different ways um, the machine learning community could contribute a lot to biohybrid design. One would be in the actual design component. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes a lot of what I was doing was very like trial and error. Like I did a little bit of finite element analysis and modeling of like, oh, if I built something that looks like this and generated force at these points, I think this is the motion it would produce. Um, and that was okay, but it's inherently a low throughput method. So I would hate, I would love to see um, the machine learning contribute something like, hey, if I gave you all of these different types of cells and I tell you their input and their output, um, and I tell you my final functional thing that I want to produce, can you help me sort through all of the different sorts of parameters um, that could create this functional output that I want such that I can narrow down a few designs that I might want to try in the lab? And there's some folks that um, already do this um, at Tufts, um, and I would love to see more of that happening. Um, the other place that I can see machine learning really contributing is taking all of the sensory inputs from um, a biohybrid tissue, say we put a bunch of sensory neurons or something into a biological robot. Um, I would love to see some sort of artificial intelligence computation happening with all those sensory inputs and resulting in processing that influences the robot's response. So those are kind of the two areas of contribution that I think would be most exciting. Great. So the last, last short questions. Do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego? Yeah. <laughs> I I think it it actually is. So you know you you always have to toe a, a delicate line, right? Like mm. you don't want to be so humble and and so soft spoken that the instant somebody shoots down your idea, you back down mm. because. You know, I, I used to be like that, and a lot of times I was right, and the other person was wrong, and I shouldn't have listened to them. Um, yeah. And I think it, it, a lot of what science is, is we have to prove to each other and then to the world around us that it is something that works. It works, you know, 100% of the time, and it's doing good. That's the definition of science. And so, you know, peer review exists. Everything exists um, to give constructive criticism and to be able to take that criticism well and to roll with it. So in that sense, you do need a little bit of an ego. However, as we see, I think, in a lot of more egregious cases in our community, it can go too far, um, especially, you know, when you're working on something with a lot of ethical implications, you can't be like, well, I have a PhD and I've worked on this for 30 years and you're just, you know, a lay person that doesn't know science, so I'm not going to listen to your opinion on something. Oh. I, I genuinely believe that you can have conviction in your ideas while also having respect for your fellow human beings and like actually listening to them. So, I mean, it's kind of a wishy-washy answer in that, yes, it's important, but uh, it's important not to have too much I think of it. It's well. serious what you said. I think um, it's a combination, but what you said is right. Humbleness and also being strong and believe in what you're doing. So it, mm -hmm. it needed a combination, as you said, right. So what was maybe um, the most important quality, what is the most important quality you have gained while working in academia? And something you have to maintain in your journey in academia. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, people will always tell you, like, you know, research is hard. You're mm. going to face a lot of failures and you just have to keep trying and perseverance and all that. And I do think that there's that is a very important skill to have. Sure. It is very important to if an experiment fails 100 times, try it 101st time. Maybe it will work. However, I think the most important skill that I've learned um, is when to let things go. 
Um, and it's, it's very tough. You, you yeah. have to learn it through, you know, sort of experimental intuition over several years. But yes, there have been projects that have taken me three years to prove that something actually works. Um, but it's not like every failure I had over those three years was a complete failure, right? Like it would fail, but I was like, ah, oh, there's this one thing I think if we could fix, we could make it better. Um, and so I kept working on it and eventually I got it to work. But there are also certain projects where I'm like, you know what? The science just isn't here yet. And just because this is a good idea doesn't mean it's a good idea for right now. Um, and you have to learn, you know, maybe you give it 10 tries, maybe you give it 100 tries, but you can't keep working on something for 30 years because, um, you know, maybe it's just a waste of time or, you know, the time's not there and your time would be better spent doing something else. So I would say that's the biggest thing I've learned is that while it is very important to persevere, um, it is also very important to learn when to let things go. Yeah, that's important. So what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was it likely changing for you? Um, I mean, I think the best advice um, that's been given to me from a lot of different sources, but something that I've kind of learned from my family and also people that I admire over the years um, is don't follow your passions. Um, mm. I think that young people, um, especially in America, but maybe it differs from culture to culture, get a lot of like, oh my gosh, like follow your dreams, like do what you're passionate about. And, you know, that's great. Um, you know, people are like, you have to love what you do. And that's certainly true. You don't want to be miserable in your daily work, but you can also can't be like, I'm really passionate about something that like nobody else cares about or doesn't affect the world in any way. Right. So like, To me, the best advice that I've been given is like, find something you love, but also find that thing that you love that also provides value to your community because it gives you a sense of purpose and it also makes sure that you have a viable career and job that you can take care of yourself and, and your family. So mm. that's, I think, the, the most important advice that's been given to me is don't just follow your passion, like follow something that's actually valuable to other people. Um, so do you have any final words to support what the community would like to say? Um, I mean, I would just like to wrap up by uh, iterating, you know, I've, I've said it before, but I would really like to uh, remind people that um, women have a lot to contribute to science and a lot to contribute to robotics. Um, and I hope that if there are any young women listening to this, that they will persevere in this field and know that they have a lot to offer. But to all of the um, men and other allies that are listening to this as well, I hope you'll take the time to encourage a young woman in your life to stay in this field because The problems we're trying to solve are so big, and if we cut out half of the world from that um, problem, um, we're going to get things that aren't very uh, important or impactful in a short period of time. So rather than thinking about how we can exclude people, I would really encourage everyone to think about how they can make their research and lab environments more inclusive. Thanks so much, Herbertu. This really was enjoyable and informative. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.